0: Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Old Testament book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 5. We're going to read together the first five verses and then verse 10 of that passage. We're going to be looking today at uh, the life of David, and I will tell you that I have kind of categorized David's life into three segments, and I've tried to label these three segments as three high water marks in David's life the third of those is found in this passage in chapter 5 and we'll work our way to that quickly today 2nd Samuel chapter 5 beginning in verse 1 then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron We'll come back to that city, that town, a little bit later. But you might want to remember that name. And Hebron, and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. And then verse 10 of that same chapter. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. This passage, 2 Samuel chapter 5, is a pivotal point in David's life. Some might describe this as a spiritual marker. I have chosen to call it a high water mark in his life. It's been a long journey for David to get to this point. He experienced many highs. He experienced many lows. But this was the beginning of something new, something that was promised to him. For us, this text this morning might remind us that God is actively involved in every part of our lives. Sometimes we forget. We reach points in life when God seems to be silent. When life is hard. When expectations go unmet and we wonder if God is working and if so, what is he doing? I would remind you this morning that we're not alone in our wondering of what God is doing. There are many in scripture that wondered as well what God was doing in their lives. I thought this week of Joseph. Joseph wondered. He did not consider being thrown into a pit by his brothers or being sold as a slave as a spiritual marker in his life. But afterward, he realized how God had orchestrated all of the events of his life. I thought about Hannah. I'm sure Hannah... Wondered. She probably didn't consider the many years that she was bearing to be a mountaintop experience, a spiritual marker in her life. But it had a purpose. And that purpose had a name. That name was Samuel. I thought about Hosea. Hosea wondered, I'm sure. He probably didn't consider God's instruction to marry a prostitute, to be a high-water mark in his life. But God used that situation to relate to an entire nation the need for repentance. All of these that I've mentioned and many more like them experienced dark, lonely, confusing, often frustrating times. David, one of the most well-known and respected men in Scripture, had his share of those Type days and events as well. But not this day. This day would be different. And 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 10 points out that even though for 15 years he faced difficult and uncertain times, God was making him greater and greater. So to me, this passage reminds us that God And the power of God is enough to work in and through our difficult situations in life. So I want to take you to that first high water mark in David's life. And that's found in 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. I would just remind you of what has taken place in previous chapters. You remember that Israel asked for a king. They didn't need a king, but they wanted a king. They wanted a man that would lead them into battle. They wanted a physical figure that they could see, that they could talk with, and that would lead them into victory. This upset the the priest Samuel. So he went to God and he prayed, and God said, if they want a king, give them a king. It's going to cost them. And in chapter 8, he lays out before them, it's going to cost them their money. It's going to cost them their sons. It's going to cost them their daughters. They're going to be enslaved once again. But if they want a king, Samuel, they've not rejected you They've rejected me. And so so God raises up Saul to be the first king of Israel. And he has a good start. It just didn't last. The end of 1 Samuel tells us the fate of what happened to King Saul. And in chapter 16... Uh, Samuel is, is grieving because Saul has been rejected as king. And God is leading him into another area, another place, so that a new king might be named. Chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. I would pause here for just a moment and point out a couple of things. Number one, God is speaking to Samuel in a way that we don't understand. It doesn't say if they're having a verbal conversation or something else is taking place, but it's really plain that God is giving Samuel specific directions and instructions to go to Jesse the Bethlehemite. And from this area, God is going to raise up, apparently, a new king. There is nothing special about Bethlehem at this point in history. Bethlehem is a sleepy town. It's small. There is nothing great about it. But God sends him there to specifically see one man, Jesse. And he does that. It says in verse 1, the last part of verse 1, I'm going to send you there because I provided for myself a king. You see, Samuel is all concerned about his king. He wants his king. He's upset because Saul has been rejected by God. And he knows God is going to lift up another king. And he's concerned about that king. From what we read here in verse 1, it seems that God has a, has a larger, a greater, if you will, picture in mind. God is not worried about a, a king for Israel. God is not concerned about a king for Samuel. God is saying, I'm providing for myself a king. This is God's plan. This is the greater plan than what Samuel has. And then in verse 2, he says, and Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord and invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do and you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you now remember this is part of the process of making David greater and the first part of that process is that somebody is going to be anointed we don't know who it is yet we have a pretty good idea but we don't know but somebody is going to be anointed An anointing is symbolic. When someone in the Old Testament was anointed, it was as if they were being set apart. Oil would be poured on them, and it would be an outward symbol of something that God was doing within a man. Kings, Solomon... David, here today, Saul, the priest of the Old Testament, they were anointed, they were set apart for a specific task and a purpose. And Samuel was prepared to anoint the next king. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to him and trembled and said, Do you come peaceably? He said, Peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So, Samuel has come to town. All the elders are saying, do we have a problem? Is something going on? Should we be concerned? Are you coming in peace? And he says, yes. As a matter of fact, we're going to get together and sacrifice. So, They called Jesse and his sons. Samuel is the only one that knows exactly what's going to be going on at this fellowship. Verse 6. When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on his height or his stature, because I have rejected him. The word rejected is the same word that's used about Saul in verse 1. It's interesting to me that Samuel, when he goes in, he sees the firstborn, Eliab, which should have been the person named as king, the oldest of the bunch. But God speaks to him again and says, don't look at his outward appearance. If you were to turn back to 1 Samuel chapter 9, when Saul was chosen... It describes Saul in verse 1 coming from a a family of wealth. In verse 2, this person of wealth had a son whose name was Saul. He's described as a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any other men. Here, God says, don't look at his outward appearance. I've rejected this one. God looks not at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, there's more going on than Samuel takes note of. God's looking for a king for himself. He's not looking for a a king that's going to be impressive by physical appearance. God is looking at the heart. So, verse 8, Jesse called the next son, Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. So, think with me a minute about what that looks like. Jesse has gathered all of his children. Seven of them anyway. And each, one by one, they've passed before Samuel. And Samuel is probably surveying the group. And he's saying, that's a good pick. That would probably be a good one. Look how strong. Look at his stature. Look, look at how tall he is. That one looks really intelligent. One by one, God's picking them off. He's pushing them to the side. It's not that one. It's not that one. He gets down to the very last one in the room. And Samuel says, did I miss God? God, didn't you send me here? We get down to the very last one, and this is not it. So he looks at Jesse, and he says, are there not others? Verse 11, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes. And he sent and brought him in. Now, I want to suggest to you this morning that when David walked in that door, when he walked in that room that day, there was nothing great about him. Most agree that David was somewhere around 15 years old somewhere in that range. He's been out tending sheep for his father. We don't know how well trained or educated that he is, but from appearance, from his age, from his position in the order of boys in that family, there's nothing special and there's nothing great about David. Verse 12 says, he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy or reddish and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. And this was a high watermark. This was a special day in the life of David. David wasn't campaigning for this. He wasn't looking for this. He had not asked for this. But God was doing a great work. He comes in from keeping sheep. Can you imagine? You've been out working all day long. You come home, and there's a priest in your home, and the priest has oil. And you look around, and all your brothers are grumpy. They've all been denied. They've all been pushed aside, as it were. They're not chosen. And maybe they look at him like Joseph's brothers looked at him. (laughs) Oh boy, here comes the young one again. Here comes the little pick of the flock, maybe. But David walks in and he just kind of says, Hey guys, what's up? I hear y'all are having a sacrifice. Who's this guy? Samuel? Don't know him what are we doing he walks in and god speaks to samuel and says anoint him verse 13 samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers i like that in the midst of his brothers right the youngest one is being raised up among his own brothers And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. One last thing that I would point out here. It says in verse 13 that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. In the Old Testament, this is is common terminology. In the New Testament, we read that the Spirit filled... For example, Peter, when Peter preached, he was filled with the Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Spirit is said to have come upon or to rush upon individuals. This is in reference to to an empowerment of God. It provided direction. It prepared individuals for a specific task. You'll note in the very next verse, verse 14, a verse that sometimes troubles us. It says that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Saul had been empowered earlier when he was anointed king. Now the Spirit of the Lord is is departing him. And the Spirit has rushed upon David. David. I, if we had time, we'd read the rest of this chapter, but I just want to point out one more verse while we're here in this first section of David's life. I want you to see what the, the spirit of the Lord rushing, rushing upon David looked like. Saul begins to have problems. There's a harmful spirit that's tormenting him, and he needs someone to play music. And, and Saul says, is there someone out there that you can get to come in and tend to care for me. And a servant says, yeah, I've heard of a guy. And this is the way he's described in verse 18. I have seen the son of Jesse the Bethlehemite, one who is skillful in play, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. What does it look like when the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David, it looks like that. It looks like a young teenage boy that was tending sheep who is now a man of valor, a man of war, a man who's prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. That's the first high-water mark in David's life, indication that God is doing something Really special. There's a second one if you turn over into second 2nd Samuel chapter 2. 2nd Samuel chapter 2 records another high water mark in his life. 2 Samuel 2 verse 1 says, after this, now a lot of things have, have taken place between 1 Samuel chapter 16 and 2nd Samuel chapter 2. Saul continued to serve as the king. David began to be lifted up in the eyes of the people of Israel and Judah. He became more famous. Saul began to decrease in importance and popularity, and David began to rise. At the end of uh, 1 Samuel, Saul dies, and the nation is grieving. After this, David inquired of the Lord. All the good kings of Israel that are to come inquired of the Lord. Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, to which shall I go? David says to God, the king is dead. Shall I go up to any of the cities? Shall I be raised up? Remember, he's already been anointed king. (laughs) He's been anointed king, and all he did was serve the king. David must be asking, is it my time? And the Lord said to him, go up. And David said, where should I go? And he says, go to Hebron. What's special about Hebron? Well, turn over to Genesis chapter 13 for just a moment. Genesis chapter 13. This is the chapter where Abram and Lot separate the land. They've been traveling together, and now it's time for them to part ways. And Abram gives Lot the opportunity to choose first which area he wants he says if you go to the east i'll go to the west if you go to the west i'll go to the east and we'll divide the land so lot chooses and he chooses the area that uh, that also encompasses the area of sodom and gomorrah verse 14 the lord said to abram after lot had separated from him For I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. I don't think it's any coincidence whatsoever that God has sent David back to the same spot that he told Abram, I'm going to give you all of this land. Now, David is in the city that God has promised. Verse 2 says, David went up from there with his two wives. And David brought up his men who were with him, everyone in his household, and they lived in the town of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. A second anointing, another high water day, a high water mark in the life of David. He's anointed once again. This time, he's anointed by the house of Judah. Now, remember, Saul has been king over all of Israel. When Saul died, the commander of Saul's army, a man by the name of Abner, chose Saul's son, a man by the name of Ish-bosheth, which literally means a man of shame, He chose him to be the king over Israel. So even though David was anointed first in 1 Samuel chapter 16, chosen as king, anointed again in 2 Samuel chapter 2 as king, he's only king over one tribe, the house of Judah. How would you have dealt with that? You've waited. You've waited your turn. You missed the promotion one more time. The patience that David displayed throughout his life, the trust that David displayed throughout his life, the willingness to wait and serve a king like Saul, the willingness to sit back to inquire of God what's next and not rush out on his own. David was becoming greater, not because of the things he was doing, but because of the, the God that was leading him and empowering him. The second anointing, becoming king over Judah, over the one tribe, God was working. Still an impressive day, a mark in the life of David. But not compared to 2 Samuel chapter 5. In the text that I read earlier, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, this is the third high water mark in David's life. This is when he becomes king over all the tribes. David is becoming greater and greater. And some might ask you know, what is the secret to David's success? You know there's been a lot of books written on that on that one topic. What's the secret to success? You have to do this. You have to be that. You have to invest in this. You have to become that. Verse 10 tells us the quote secret of David's success. And we already know this. David became greater and greater. Now how did he become greater? What does that mean? The word greater that's used here is used over 500 times in Scripture. 500 times that word is used. It's used to mean a lot of different things. It talks about armings being greater. That would be more in number. It talks about knowledge, that some had greater knowledge. That means that they were more intelligent. What does that mean about David? Well, in David's case, he became greater and greater because the Lord was with him. What did David do? Well, he was a commander. He was in the army. He was in the military. He was a king. He led men into battle. He conquered. He did great things, great acts. He trusted God greatly. He had faith in God greatly. He had patience greatly. How did David become greater and greater? God. You see, David served a great God. And God was bringing to fruition his plan, not only for David, not only for Israel, but for the next king to be born in Bethlehem. It uses a phrase here to to describe God. It says he became greater for the Lord. The God of hosts was with him. This has become one of my favorite descriptors of God. He's the God of hosts. I don't know what you say when you pray, Lord God, God, God. Almighty God, those are all good. Those are all great. They're all perfect. They're all right. But Lord God of hosts has just become, in recent years, one of my favorite descriptors of who God is. The word host, the word host is a word that's first used in Genesis to describe the multitude of the, the stars. God, God created the heavenly hosts, the stars. You ever been out on a dark night? We live out in the country, and there's not a lot of lights. You walk out on a clear night, and man, it's like the stars will just, it just blinds you. And you just see the multitude. You try to count those stars, and you, and you just can't. There's so many of them. Hannah, in 1 Samuel chapter 1, prayed Lord of Hosts, and I have to think because of the burdens that she was experiencing in her life, I have to think that she was probably outside one night and she was looking up, and she saw all the stars, and that just that just triggered with her Lord of Hosts. And somewhere a little bit later in Genesis, the word host became connected with military, with with. Uh, a mass number of soldiers and people. And from that point forward, it's always used in reference of military. This phrase, Lord God of hosts, David used it 17 times in Psalms. Isaiah used this phrase to describe God 60 times. Zechariah in 14 chapters identified God as the Lord God of hosts 46 times. Malachi, four chapters in the Old Testament, 24 times described as the Lord God of hosts. There's got to be something to this title. It's got to mean something. Who is the Lord God of hosts, and what is this host that's being mentioned? Throughout the Old Testament, God always presented himself in such a way that people could relate with him. He identified with them. Even Jesus in the New Testament identified with people. When God is described as the Lord God of hosts in the Old Testament, He's relating with people that are familiar with military, host, great armies. What does this look like? Well, if you go down in chapter 5 just a little bit further, it gives us a little picture of what the Lord God of hosts looks like. It says in verse 17, when the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, but David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines had come to spread out of the valley of Rephaim, And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And, David, and the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal-perim, and David defeated them there. And he said, "'The Lord has burst through my enemies before me like a bursting flood. "'Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal-perazim.' "'And the Philistines left their idols there, "'and David and his men carried them away. "'And the Philistines came up yet again "'and spread out of the valley of Raphim. "'And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, "'You shall not go up, go around to their rear,' and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. What does the host of the Lord God look like? It looks like something marching through the tops of balsam or mulberry trees that goes out before the people of God. Why is that important? Because there are great battles. And there are battles taking up place right now that we are not even aware of. We look around us and we look for... For tangible problems we look for physical problems and physical battles but scripture tells us that there's another realm <laughs> there's a there's a heavenly realm there's things that are going on above us right now that we don't have any insight to there's some glimpse of that if you want to turn to 2 Kings chapter 6 very familiar passage this is with Elisha the prophet who takes his servant out one day and the servant is afraid because there's an army of people that surrounded the city. And he wakes up and he looks out the window one morning and he runs to Elisha and he says, oh no, Elisha, there's an army that's all around us. We're surrounded. There's no hope. Elisha kind of wakes up, rubs his eyes, yawns a little bit. And then in verse 18, he says to this servant, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What did the host look like? It looked something like an army filled with with men all around the mountains. It looks like horses and chariots of fire somewhere around us, somewhere around Elisha on that day. Why is that important? Because that host has a commander, and the commander is the Lord Jehovah God Yahweh of hosts. It seems that God has friends in high places. It seems that God has a a bigger picture in mind than what we can imagine. And in these passages, it seems that God just kind of pinches the realm between here and there. And he just allows Elisha and the servant an opportunity to get a glimpse of what it looks like. The Lord God of hosts was with David and he strengthened him and he empowered him and he led him and he guided him. And why is that important to us today? He's the same Lord God of hosts. He never changes. He's the same yesterday, Saturday, He's the same tomorrow, Monday. He's the same generation after generation. And He's the same Lord God of hosts. Now, how does that benefit us? Let me show you one other passage. Turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus. He's writing to say, Get ready. Get ready for the fight. Verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes the schemes, the plans of the devil. For we on this earth, flesh and blood, we do not wrestle against other flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, in the heavenly places. In the heavenly places. well that's where the battle is going on folks the battle is going on in the heavenly places you think your battle is going on here no the battle is going on in the heavenly places how do we fight battles in the heavenly places well he tells us our role our role is to be strong in the Lord how do we fight heavenly battles? Well, we, we trust the Lord. What Lord? The Lord God of hosts. We're down here. We're just getting dressed. We're praying. We're doing our part here. What are we trusting in? God to fight the battles. What does that mean? That means when you get lonely and you get depressed, you pray. God's fighting the battle. When you're confused, when you don't know which direction to take, when you need advice and can't find advice, what do you do? You get dressed, you pray, and you let the Lord God of hosts fight the battle. That means you're never alone. That means you've always got a commander going out before you, fighting your battles. How did David become greater and greater? God. God. Isn't that the answer? Always the answer at church, right? Somebody asks a question at church, the answer is always God. Yeah. David became greater and greater because his God was a great God. And his God had a great army to protect, to defend, and to defeat the enemy. And I would suggest to you this morning that we serve the same God. And he's fighting the same battles. And he's providing the victories that we need. If only we will be still and trust him to fight our battles for us. Let's pray. Lord, in the stillness of the moment, we are grateful that you and you alone are the Lord God of hosts, that you command all the heavenly armies, that you're controlling all things on our behalf. And like David, you have a plan for your people Lord, we're grateful that our role in that great battle is to pray. I pray that you might help us to embrace that, prepare for that, and that we might fight valiantly. Thank you that, like David, you raise up men and women to do great things, to be great leaders. Lord I pray that we would always like Samuel be reminded that God doesn't look at the outward appearance of man he looks at the heart and that we might look at the hearts of individuals as well and be willing to follow those leaders that you raise up because you and you alone are working all things out for your good I thank you for our time today and I pray that your word would find this place in our heart that you might use it for your good and your glory in our lives in the days ahead. In Christ's name, amen.